Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this fourth in this series on atrocity and religion in our memory. Of all of the stories that I'm telling in this lecture series on atrocities in the early modern age, this evening's one is the least remembered, at least in this country, and it is a strange, twisting story. We know about the age of global exploration, the age of Columbus and Magellan and Cortes and Pizarro, the brutal colonization of the Americas by Spain and Portugal in the 16th century. We also know that that's a religious as well as a political story, bringing Catholicism to the new world on the point of a sword. But we know much less in this country about the spread of Catholicism during the same era in the old world, as missionaries sent out by the Catholic religious orders travelled with and forged ahead of the soldiers and the traders. We could tell the very contrasting stories of the missions to the Kingdom of Congo in West Africa or to Imperial China. But my focus tonight is on Japan. The Jesuits, properly speaking, the Society of Jesus, the, the, the mix of modesty and assertiveness contained in that blunt title, the Society of Jesus. It's very characteristic. This is a religious order founded in 1534 by a Spaniard, former soldier, Ignatius Loyola, an order which from the beginning had a single-minded dedication to missionary work. Four years after the order's foundation, in 1538, the Portuguese king asked the Jesuits to come to his burgeoning trading empire in the Indian Ocean and to spread the gospel there. Ignatius's colleague, Francis Xavier, another Spaniard, was the first to answer the call, eventually setting out in 1541. It's worth emphasizing that embarking for the East Indies as a missionary in the 1540s was not something to be done lightly. Even the voyage was fantastically dangerous. Reaching the Far East took the best part of a year, most of it confined to tiny ships eating meagre supplies and eking out the stagnating fresh water. Xavier believed that when he set out that this was going to be a one-way ticket. He expected that he would never return to Europe, and he was right. His first stop was the Portuguese foothold at Goa in western India, where he set about trying to win converts, but quickly ran into political problems. The Portuguese had a rather more aggressive notion of how a mission ought to be conducted than he did. He left India in 1545 for the Spice Islands of Malacca. But he's already aware that there are a pair of other societies in East Asia which his attention was drawn towards. Complex, sophisticated, wealthy, militarily powerful societies which dominated the region, societies which even the most self-satisfied Europeans of the age recognised as their equals in civility, and which by most measures were plainly more advanced, namely China and Japan. Xavier and the Jesuits were drawn to them like moths. Xavier would in fact die of a fever um, on, on, on the edge of China in 1552, but first of all, he went to Japan, where from 1549 to 52, he established the first Catholic mission. Two things made Japan particularly propitious for the missionary effort at, at this date. Um, first of all, surprisingly for an island nation, it wasn't at this point a significant maritime power. And the Portuguese, who by now had made themselves into the shipping workhorses of East Asia, were able to use trade with Japan as a foothold for other kinds of ventures. And the other thing is that Japan at this point was in some political turmoil. Uh, formally speaking, Japan was a single empire covering the islands of Honshu and Kyushu. Uh, the northern island of Hokkaido wasn't brought fully into the empire until the 19th century. But the emperor had long been a revered figurehead with real power held by the shoguns, in effect military dictators who ruled in the emperor's name. But after a disputed succession to the shogunate in 1477, this system broke down and the feudal lords of each locality, the so-called daimyos, asserted their independence. 
And this is the context where the Portuguese show up selling, amongst other things, that newfangled contraption, the musket. And they found plenty of eager customers. So arriving in this context, I think it's better to look at, look at, the, look at it as they saw it. Um, arriving in this context, Xavier had a strategic choice to make. The conventional missionary approach in hostile territory was to start at the margins, to look for the oppressed, for voiceless or powerless groups, people for whom Christian talk of justice for the poor and spiritual equality could have an appeal. This was the way it had been done in India. There were excellent reasons for doing this, of reasons of high principle. It was also quite a good way to get quick results. Xavier and his handful of assistants chose a different, a more ambitious strategy. They did not want Catholicism in Japan to be a religion of the marginal and the despised, but a religion of the people as a whole. And that meant, it seemed to them, working through the structures of power. Xavier initially tried to reach the emperor and the shogun in Kyoto, but he slowly became aware that despite their grand titles, they had very little real power. Instead, the mission would for now depend on the local daimyo, persuading them either to become Christians themselves or at the very least to permit Christian preaching in their territories. And that meant respecting Japanese ways, a project which meant much more than just learning the Japanese language. It meant asserting the, 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 the cultural and intellectual credibility of Christianity in a scholarly conservative culture that was generally suspicious of foreign learning. And it meant some radical adaptation. Whoops. Um, for example, Xavier had taken a vow of poverty as a Jesuit. And in Europe, visible apostolic poverty was part of the society's moral authority. But he recognized now that in Japan, the moral authority attached to being poor simply didn't obtain. And so he and his fellows instead dressed as wealthy Japanese scholars, and they presented themselves as foreign dignitaries, bearing valuable gifts. The daimyo of Yamaguchi, Uchi Yoshitaka, was one of the first to accept this. In 1551, he gave the Jesuits permission to preach in his dominions, and he gave them the use of a Buddhist temple. That last detail is not an accident. Buddhism was a substantial minority religion in contemporary Japan, and it was also a controversial one. During the era of, of, of civil war and of, of you know, this, this era of chaos that lasts from the late 15th through the 16th century, many Buddhist monasteries had, in effect, become independent military powers. And for daimyo who are trying to consolidate their local control, the Buddhists were often a threat. The Jesuits offered the possibility, not just of a direct link to the Portuguese and to the firearms which they sold, but also of a religious counterweight to the Buddhists. And what harm, it seemed, could come from letting this handful of eccentric foreigners preach their alternative religion? At least that's the cynical way of seeing it. But too much cynicism about this mission will not do. It's vital for this whole story to understand that Japanese Christianity was never merely a tactical political entity. Real converts, converts of persuasion and conviction, were already being made. To take the man whom we know only by the name he chose on his conversion, Irma Lorenzo, the first Japanese actually to become a Jesuit brother himself, um, th this man was virtually blind, was a travelling minstrel who was converted by Xavier himself and now seamlessly added Christian evangelism to his repertoire. He's one of the first signs that Catholicism was genuinely going to put down roots in early modern Japan. Xavier left Japan in late 1551, but others stayed to continue the work. A turning point a promising and also ominous one came in 1562, when for the first time a daimyo, Omoru Sumitatu, actually converted and was baptized. He promptly embarked on a purge of Buddhist worship from his territories, burning temples, destroying statues, despite the Jesuits urging him not to. 
And this is a sign of what's to follow, thanks in part to the most extraordinary political figure in 16th century Japan, the daimyo Oda Nobunaga from Awari province in central Honshu. In 1568, he successfully installed a new shogun following the murder of his predecessor, and he emerged as the country's most powerful military leader. He's not of high enough birth to become shogun himself. Nobunaga was no Christian, but he was ferociously anti-Buddhist, and he understood the old principle about my enemy's enemy. In the same year, 1568, he extended formal privileges to the Jesuits. During the 1570s, Nobunaga's power and Christian conversions grew almost in parallel, especially on the southern island of Kyushu, which had been the center for Christian activity from the start. By the early 1580s, there were astonishingly some 150,000 baptized Christians in Japan, the vast majority of them on Kyushu. That number was astonishing, and it was also suspicious. The numbers had far outstripped any kind of priestly provision. In 1583, there were 32 priests in Japan ministering to that, that enormous number of converts. All of them were European at that point. Many of these were plainly factional political conversions, taking their lead from political leaders. Whole territories were being baptized at a stroke. Of course, that was the way things worked in Europe. It was the way things had worked in Europe back, back in the in the, in the days of initial conversion, a more cynical missionary establishment might have accepted that and worked with it. But not Alessandro Valignano, the new visitor of missions to the Indies for the Jesuits, who arrived in 1579, having been fed exciting tales of the growth of the Japanese mission, and was horrified rather than excited by what he found not the glorious mission field which the letters had described, but a deeply politicized movement that was pursuing sheer numbers rather than deep or sustainable conversions. He swiftly imposed a series of changes, setting up a seminary in Japan itself, patronizing translations of texts into Japanese, pressing for much greater embrace of Japanese culture by the missionaries, Japanese social norms and hierarchies and formalities, he insisted, must be followed. The Jesuits should build homes in the Japanese style, participate in tea ceremonies, adopt Japanese customs of hygiene, which, let's say, were rather more exacting than those of contemporary Europeans. He also fatefully secured a major logistical coup in 1580. A daimyo on the Christianized island of Kyushu granted the Jesuits a lease over the small port of Nagasaki, including the right to regulate trade there and to keep the accompanying customs revenues. And that was going to become a key base of operations for the Japanese mission and also a vital source of funds and the most significant center of the Christian population. That small port would, off the back of this, these privileges, balloon into one of Japan's most substantial cities. As that shows, although Valignano was concerned to nurture the spiritual side of the mission, to depoliticize it, he wasn't naive about the political context. He met Nobunaga in the same year, in 1580, and was clear that the strategic alliance with him offered enormous potential. Unfortunately for the Jesuits, Nobunaga's military luck ran out in 1582, and he was forced into a ritual suicide. One of his generals, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, took up his cause, and indeed finished the job, united most of Japan under his effective rule by the end of the 1580s. At first, the alliance with the Jesuits seemed to continue. Hideyoshi was as anti-Buddhist as his old master had been. The Jesuits received grants of land. He employed Christians as his generals. When he established full military control over Kyushu in 1587, the Christian daimyos were favored. But Hideyoshi was also growing concerned by the Christian counterweight to the Buddhists that had been created. The story we have is that after an evening drinking on Kyushu in 1587, he summoned the commander of his guards, a Christian named Takayuma Ukon, and demanded that as a test of loyalty, he renounce his Christianity on the spot. When he refused, he was sent into exile, and Hideyoshi summoned the head of the Japanese Jesuits, accused him of forced conversions, 
foreign allegiances and selling Jap- Japanese subjects as slaves to the Portuguese. That last accusation seems to have been completely groundless, but it tells you something of the mood. The following day, he issued an edict expelling all foreign missionaries from, the, from Japan and banning daimyos from being Christians. Now, obviously, this produced an immediate crisis, but partly because there wasn't at present a ship on which the foreigners could leave, the order had to be suspended, and it slowly became clear that Hideyoshi was not going to enforce it. It remained hanging as a permanent threat, and slowly the Jesuits began operating again under its shadow. In 1591, Valignano had a cordial meeting with Hideyoshi. The suspicion seemed to be lifting. But then in 1593, a new element entered the picture, a second Catholic mission, led this time not by Jesuits, but by Spanish Franciscan friars, the order who'd pioneered the mission in the Americas and who had their own very distinct ideas about how these things should be done which didn't involve so much cautious and respectful acculturation. The Franciscans opened a public church in Nagasaki in 1594 without permission, and they acquired a reputation for being abrasive. Even this might not have exploded into trouble if it were not for the so-called San Felipe incident. On the 19th of October 1596, a badly off-course Spanish galleon called the San Felipe was washed up in Japan. And its officers, who were indignant at being arrested and brusquely handled, tried to bluster their way out of trouble by boasting about the vast size of the Spanish Empire and brandishing a world map of it, and also apparently insisting that their missionaries were a vital part of such conquests. This did not, it turned out, have the desired effect. If Hideyoshi had suspected the loyalty of his Christian subjects before now, it now seemed that they were positively dangerous. He had the ship seized, its crew deported, and he ordered all the Franciscans in Japan to be executed. Around 160 people were arrested, both Spanish Franciscans and their Japanese adherents, although the officer in charge ensured that most of them were spared. The final total of those who were executed on the 5th of February 1597 was 26. Six European Franciscans, 10 Japanese Franciscan brothers, three Japanese Jesuits, and seven ordinary Japanese Christians, lay Christians. They spent a couple of months being marched from Kyoto to Nagasaki, all the way down, you know, half, halfway through Japan, paraded through the streets. They had their ears partly cut off as humiliation, and then at last in Nagasaki they were crucified, using the punishment that they had taught to their captors although they were tied with ropes rather than nailed, and they were then speared rather than being left for days to die in the old Roman style. The order for the Jesuits to leave the country was renewed, and nobody knew if this time it was for real, because this was all happening amidst another political crisis. The aging Hideyoshi was desperately and vainly trying to ensure that when he died, his son would succeed him. A show of anti-Christian strength was at least part Uh, in part, part of that power struggle. Matters were still unclear when Hideyoshi died in September 1598, and that kicked off first a struggle for power and then an actual civil war, which ended with a crushing victory, not for Hideyoshi's hapless son, but for Tokugawa Iyasu, who was de facto ruler of Japan from 1600 and formally became shogun in 1603. He died in 1616, but he created the strongly unified government, the so-called Tokugawa shogunate that would govern Japan until 1868. The political situation is now the opposite of the one the Jesuits had found when they'd first arrived half a century earlier. There's now only one center of political power in Japan with which to deal. Iyasu at first permitted the Jesuits to remain, And the period between 1590 and 1614 actually turns out to have been the heyday of Christian growth in Japan, despite the killings in 1597. The numbers of Jesuits, of Jesuit missionaries, peaked at 140 in 1607, and by 1614 there were something like 300,000 Japanese Christians. No longer, it seems, politically organized mass conversions, but actual grassroots growth 
drawn from all levels of society. Nagasaki had become, in effect, a Christian city. With relatively few priests still, lay confraternities governed for and by ordinary Japanese believers became central to the community's life, often with charitable works at their heart, which helped to grow the community further. So this substantial minority is now on a collision course with Iyasu's regime. Some local daimyos engaged in some persecution. In one notorious case in Heizen province on Kyushu in 1613, um, a daimyo executed eight families of Christians and was daunted when, as we're told, 20,000 Christians showed up not to protest but to silently and peacefully witness the executions assembled in ranks, um, which may have been more threatening than an actual rebellion would have been. Equally, any Japanese suspicions about the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Jesuits and their intentions were being stoked by two groups of newcomers, Dutch and English traders, who were keen to assure their hosts that the Jesuits and Catholics in general were scheming and malicious agents of the devil. But we don't know quite what triggered Iyasu's edict of 1614, the edict in which he declared that the Christian band have come to Japan not only sending their merchant vessels to exchange commodities, but also longing to disseminate an evil law, to overthrow right doctrine, so that they may change the government of the country and obtain possession of the land. They must be instantly swept out, so that not an inch of soil remains to them in Japan. Under this edict, all Christian clergy were expelled, and the policing of the whole country's religious orthodoxy was put under the control of as you've probably already guessed, the Buddhists, whom Ayasu now turned into part of the state religion. And this, this time, the decree was in earnest. Churches were destroyed. The power of the last pro-Christian daimyos was broken. Clergy were assembled in Nagasaki for deportation. And by the end of 1614, most of them had gone. But at least 33 priests remained in Japan illegally. And for the time being, lay Christians were left largely undisturbed. During this period of sort of phony persecution, Christian growth continued. There's, in fact, quite rapid spread into northern Honshu. The real shift came when Ayasu died in 1616 and was succeeded by his son, Tokugawa Hidetata, who turned an anti-Christian policy into general opposition to foreign contacts and adventures of any kind. He oversaw a slow increase of persecution. By the time he abdicated in 1623, at least 323 Christians had been executed. That included a particularly severe purge in 1622, provoked by the discovery of two European priests whom a Japanese Christian trader had tried to smuggle into the country. 55 Christians were killed in Nagasaki on the 10th of September 1622, 25 by burning, 30 by beheading. The burning was done in part to prevent relics being gathered. Anybody who was seen to be praying at the executions was threatened with the same fate. The next shogun, Tokugawa Emitsu, redoubled the same policy. He was shocked or maybe emboldened by the discovery of a clandestine Christian community complete with Jesuit priests in the capital city of Edo. And he began his reign with a show of force. 89 people were killed in two mass executions in December 1623. And significantly, for the first time, 14 of these weren't actually Christians, but were, were accused of sheltering or assisting Christians. The movement wasn't yet broken. We still have formal Jesuit records from the years 1624 to 6. They're still winning converts. Only in 1627 did this turn into a full-scale general persecution. The regime now recognized that merely killing Christians could be counterproductive because of the classic logic of martyrdom. And so they set their sights on making Christians publicly renounce their faith by the use of brutal torture where necessary. Scalding was one favored method. Another was being hanged upside down over a festering pit until you either recanted or died. And to the regime's dismay, no priests or lay brothers recanted, or not until 1633, 
when Cristóbal Ferreira, the Portuguese vice principal of the Jesuits in Japan, cracked after six hours hung over the pit. Um, and he not only recanted, but then turned informer. In total, something like 1,200 Christians were killed either by execution or torture between 1627 and 34. The final end to the drama came in December 1637 on western Kyushu, which had been a Christian stronghold for so long and to which many Christians from elsewhere in Japan had retreated, including some former samurai. The confraternities were still functioning there, those networks. But the new daimyo was determined at last to implement official policy, and the result was a rebellion. Of course, this confirmed all the regime's fears about Christian subversion. In fact, the rebels didn't receive any outside assistance, and nor were they led by priests who were now all gone or dead. But it was plainly and unmistakably a Christian, indeed a messianic rebellion. The grim proof that this was more than a political game of shadows. They're inspired by prophecies of revival from dark times under plainly Christian banners. They were stirred up by an unusual autumnal flowering of the cherry trees, which fitted with a prophecy. They won initial victories against the daimyo's forces. They came close to taking the castle of Shimabara. If they had marched on Nagasaki, they very likely would have taken that too. When the shogun's own forces landed on Kyushu, they fought with a ferocious apocalyptic fervor and with some success. The first attempt to break them in battle failed in February 1638, and so a new commander decided simply to pen them in and to starve them out. They were broken in April, and they were slaughtered with no quarter given. The figures for the deaths are... Very hard to establish, but we're certainly talking tens of thousands. The lesson of this rebellion was never forgotten by the Tokugawa regime. To an extraordinary extent, it organized itself for the next two centuries and more around the fear and hatred of Christianity. From 1639, all contact with the outside world for Japanese subjects was strictly forbidden. In 1640, a Portuguese embassy arrived by ship in Japan, which was attempting, in part, to pay debts that were owed to Japanese merchants. No missionaries. But nevertheless, the ship was destroyed, along with its cargo, and almost all on board were executed. Only a handful sent back to make sure that the message was received. Foreigners were not welcome. A new authority, the Christian Inquisition Office, was created, charged with hunting down all hidden Christians. And central to this became the so-called fumie. This was a technique used to compel Christians to reveal themselves. Remarkably, for decades, every year on Kyushu, a little less regularly elsewhere, every adult was required publicly to tread on an image like these an image of the crucifix or of the Virgin Mary, some some other plainly Christian icon. This extraordinary requirement was enforced right across the country for most of the 17th century. It is only formally relaxed in 1792. In 1687, new regulations were put in place to ensure that anyone related to or descended from a known Christian was put under additional lifelong surveillance. And this is not mere paranoia. Arrests and executions continue through this period. They do tail off by the end of the century. But the last mass execution of Christians that we know of took place in 1697. All of this took place in a Japan that was now completely inaccessible to the Catholic world. Uh, A few further attempts by missionaries to land um, ended badly. But this did not mean that they were forgotten. Instead, the sheer scale of this drama, a mission which went from nothing to a thriving church, hundreds of thousands strong, to extraordinary levels of persecution, to apparently nothing again, all within the course of a single century. This gripped the imagination of Catholic Christians all over the world, and nowhere more so than back home in Europe. The Jesuits, who were always excellent at keeping records and sharing news, feeding the publicity machine, made sure that their readers devoured tales of this impressively civilized country where the Christian gospel had fallen on such fertile soil, 
where it was growing faster, more robustly than anywhere else in the world. And then when the tide turned and the killings began, not least because of that striking beginning with the crucifixions in 1597, Catholic Christendom was ready with its reactions. Horror and dismay, but also a certain grim triumph. Martyrdom had been part of Christianity's story about itself since ancient times. This fitted all too cleanly into the narrative. The initial account of the 1597 executions by a Portuguese Jesuit was published in Italian and Latin in 1599, ran through at least five editions that year. French versions were soon to follow. This was a fairly straight account. No time for lavish illustration or interpretation. That was going to follow. Over the course of the 17th century, the martyrs of Japan would be celebrated again and again by European Catholics. This French woodcut from 1628 is maybe the most famous, the portrait of what by then were known to have been only the first of the martyrs. So we move from the, the persecuting crowds at their feet, all of them you'll notice faceless, to the ranks of the martyrs who are in unison, but each face is picked out with, with striking individuality, to above them, the company of heaven preparing their martyrs' palms of victory. This German engraving of the same date doesn't have quite the same dignity to it, but it makes up for it, I think, with vividness. The reason that we have these multiple images from 1628 is that in September of the previous year, Pope Urban VIII had beatified the 26 Nagasaki victims, formally recognising them as martyrs for the faith, and they remain known by Catholics down to the present as the 26 martyrs of Japan. But as with any atrocity story, we always need to ask who benefits from the telling of this story? Whose interest is it in? Whose cause does it serve? In Europe, this is the age of the Counter-Reformation and of the Thirty Years' War. So examples of Catholic militancy and faithfulness were very welcome. There were heroes to be emulated. There's also a lower, more political story about the perennial rivalry between different religious orders. The Japanese mission had mostly been the work of the Jesuits, but the 26 martyrs of Nagasaki had been predominantly Franciscan. And since Urban VIII had earlier made saints of some of the, early, some of the first Jesuit founders, this helped to even the score. But there's another more specific story that's maybe of more local interest to us. By the late 1610s, the Japanese mission was effectively over. But there was another prickly, assertive island kingdom which had recently switched from being welcoming to Catholicism to persecuting it with brutal vigour. English Catholics didn't suffer quite so genocidal a purge as their Japanese brethren, but the story of what happened on the other side of the world, and especially of how heroically Japan's believers had held firm to the end, was very relevant here. This book, is an English translation of the first-hand account of that persecution written by the Spanish Jesuit Pedro Morejon, published in 1619. And it came with a freshly written preface addressed to all that suffer persecution in England for Catholic religion. And the translator emphasized just how similar the Japanese and English situations were. They, he says to English Catholics, be falsely slandered and calumniated in many things by the devil's ministers and so be you. They be persecuted for their religion, many of them to death, more to loss of goods by the enemies of Christ and his holy church, and so be you. Finally, they for their valor and constancy in God's cause be famous in all those parts of the world, yea, and in Europe also, and you for yours be no less glorious, both in all Europe and in all the rest of the Christian world. And the point of this isn't just flattery but also to exhort English Catholics. Be more careful to commend in your prayers to Almighty God the necessities of those poor afflicted Christians, your brethren in Japan, as also more willing to imitate their admirable examples of valor and courage in the cause of Christ. He does then go on to add that some of the examples of Japanese sufferings were so extreme that readers should admire them, but as he didn't quite put it, shouldn't try this at home. 
the book even claimed rather tenuously that the Protestants who were persecuting English Catholics were also involved in the Japanese persecutions. This is an apparent nod to the role of English and Dutch merchants in feeding suspicions of the Jesuits in Japan. It's a valiant attempt to unite the Eastern and Western persecutions into one vast struggle. And, and it's, it's not completely groundless, but in fact what made the example of the Japanese persecutions so powerful in a divided Europe was that even Protestants were forced to concede to their admiration for the steadfast of Japan's Catholics. A Dutch Protestant merchant stationed in Nagasaki in the mid-1620s unproblematically called the Japanese Catholic victims martyrs. That's not what a Protestant is supposed to say. And he added, their resolution is all the more to be admired since they knew so little of God's word that they might, one might term it stubbornness rather than steadfastness. It's extraordinary that amongst them are so many who remain steadfast to the end and endure so many insufferable torments in spite of their scanty knowledge of the Holy Scriptures. This isn't what Protestants expect of Catholics. This gentleman seems to have found it genuinely baffling. What greater proof is there of how valuable a story this was for Catholics? Still, as the Japanese persecution faded into memory and Japan itself remained resolutely closed, these atrocities slowly lost their prominence for the Catholic world. The stories were retold, the accounts were reprinted, English versions particularly surfaced right through the 17th century, but it becomes a trickle rather than a flood. What changes that is the sudden reopening of Japan in the mid-19th century as the rising European and American imperialism makes isolation unsustainable. Famously, on the 8th of July, 1653, the American naval commodore Matthew Perry, under orders to open Japan to American trade, sailed into Edo Bay, Tokyo Bay as we now call it, with eight ships armed with 73 cannon firing explosive shells. Um, and as they say, made the Japanese an offer that they couldn't refuse. The result was a 20-year process in which Japan switched from aggressive isolationism to a determination to meet the Western imperial powers on their own terms. This did, though, involve opening to trade, and also, eventually, reluctantly, to Christian mission. Western memories of Japan's long-ago Christian century are dusted off, hopes that the Christianization of Japan might resume ran high, the Christian missionary surge into Japan is beyond my scope today. It's enough to say that there is enormous effort made in the late 19th, early 20th century for very little return. Or again, that when the United States occupied Japan after 1945, General MacArthur made Christianizing the defeated enemy his personal mission to very little avail. What I want to notice is how the memory of the 17th century atrocities has figured since Japan was reopened. Because if the 19th century missionaries didn't succeed in converting Japan, they did make an astonishing discovery. That despite two and a half centuries of systematic persecution, Japanese Christianity had not in fact been entirely exterminated. Once Christianity is legalized in 1873, several scattered communities of so-called kakure karishitan, hidden Christians, slowly revealed themselves. They were and are found chiefly on Kyushu and its offshore islands, in particular two small islands off the northwest corner of Kyushu. These communities had endured alone for nearly two and a half centuries. They had no priests, but they baptized their children. They taught them Japanese language prayers, sometimes versions of Latin or Portuguese texts. They met secretly in private homes for worship. Some of them concealed their worship under Buddhist forms. For example, using tradi uh, traditional Japanese Buddhist images of a mother and child like these and venerating them as images of the Virgin Mary and the infant Christ. In particular, they preserved a strong sense of the liturgical year arranged around a series of key festivals. And of course, they burnished and treasured the memory of their martyrs. This was a very dangerous thing to do. And one result is that the rites of commemoration were often dressed up in Buddhist or Shinto clothes. Sites associated with the deaths of Christian martyrs were often marked in Shinto fashion by the planting of a central pine tree surrounding a ring of smaller trees. There are tales of relics being buried at the roots of the trees. 
um, these groves were mostly destroyed in the 20th century. Uh, the modern Kakure Kirishitan have added stone shrines like, like these to these spots, and incense is burned and offerings of food and sake are made there. Some of these are graves of individuals who are otherwise unrecorded, but there are some that we can document, like Gasupara Nishi, who was a high-born administrator sent into exile on the island of Ikitsuki after his Christian master was driven from office in 1609, and who was beheaded later the same year, together with his wife and son. The stone graves are still tended. And when the, when the memorial tree was felled, the wood from it, some of the wood from it was used to make a crucifix, which is now on display in Nagasaki. And other sites are more general, so, such as the so-called Mound of a Thousand People at Senenzuka, said to be the site of a mass grave, which has now got a modern memorial on it. Or the memorial to a smaller group of Christians elsewhere on the island who included a pregnant woman who had vainly begged to be spared on the account of her unborn child. One of the most important is the tiny island of Nakainoshima, which between 1622 and 1624 was the site of 14 executions of Christians who were taken there and strangled or beheaded and their bodies thrown into the sea in a deliberate attempt to thwart relic collectors. And the result was that the island itself became a relic of sorts. The long-standing practice of the local Kakure Karishitan community is to bring water from this island for use in baptisms. Water taken from a small intermittent spring of fresh water in one spot on the island. The spring, sometimes the entire island, is known as the spring of St. John the Baptist. The spring's intermittency is part of its power. A Kukuru Karishitan account from the early 20th century claimed that the waters flow from the spring when the prayers that are said in front of it are heard in Rome. It appears that the mood of these commemorations is not and has not been confrontational or vindictive. This is a defeated and almost an exterminated community for whom anger, even righteous anger, was a luxury that couldn't be afforded. The prominence of the martyrs and their cults reflects simply the huge impact on this community of the cataclysmic events of the early 17th century. The relative ease with which Christian shrines could be disguised as Buddhist or Shinto ones, sometimes even attracting non-Christian devotees. But there's also a sense of atonement. The Kakura Kirishitan brought, bought their survival at a price. In such a heavily Christianized area, the only way that faith could be preserved was by succumbing to the Fumier rite, by proving allegiance to the emperor, by trampling Christian images. For communities which have only survived by making such terrible compromises, to honor the memory of the martyrs who had chosen to die rather than to give in is more penitential than triumphalist. And worse, because for Catholic Christians who don't have priests, the sacramental healing offered by confession and atonement and reconciliation wasn't available to them. It's been, I think, very plausibly argued that the Kakuru Kirishitan honored their martyrs so assiduously because this was the best and only way that they could repent for their own and their ancestors' sins. It is a painful reading of the story. But I could only wish that religious communities which suffer and remember atrocities might learn from that example, to remember atrocities with sorrow, sorrow and repentance rather than with righteous rage might be the beginning of wisdom. Some of the Kakuru Kirishitan, especially on the islands, retained their distinctive identity and traditions after the opening, but the majority were welcomed back into the global Catholic Church. We are not talking about a lot of people, maybe 30,000 in the 19th century. Nevertheless, Nagasaki once again became the capital of Christian Japan, and the Catholic Church revived its own memory of the martyrs. The original 26 martyrs of 1597, who, as you'll remember, had been beatified in 1627, are canonized as saints by Pope Pius IX in 1862. And they're only the start. In 1867, a further group of 205 Japanese martyrs of the 17th century are beatified in Rome, and this group has grown still further in our own lifetimes. Pope John Paul II canonized 16 Japanese martyr saints in 1987. 
Benedict XVI beatified a group of 188 Japanese martyrs in 2008. These martyrs have become hugely important to the Japanese Catholic Church's sense of itself. That church nowadays stands at some half a million people, around, not quite half of 1% of Japan's population. Many of them are Filipino immigrants or the descendants of Japanese migrants to South America who've returned to their ancestral country. The focus of memory remains above all on the original 26 martyrs to whom this vast public monument with accompanying museum was built in 1962. Modern Japan has not embraced Christianity, but it has embraced this part of its past. The Basilica of the 26 Martyrs in Nagasaki, which was built in 1864 before Catholicism was formally re-legalized, was recognized in 2018, along with 11 other sites in the region, as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the whole group being known as Hidden Christian Sites. And the proposal to UNESCO didn't come from the Catholic community, but from the Japanese government. The wider Japanese awareness of the persecution owes a great deal to one extraordinary book, the 1966 novel Silence by the Japanese Catholic Shusaku Endo, which centers on the moral struggle of a captured 17th century missionary who knows that unless he renounces his faith by trampling a Fumiya image, his fellow Christians will die for his defiance. The book was a prize-winning critical success in Japan, and it was particularly embraced by Japan, uh, Japan's pacifist left, rather more so than it was by the small Catholic community. And it's since been adapted into a stage play, an opera, and no less than three films. Most recently, Martin Scorsese's harrowing 2016 version, also called Silence. The mood of this novel and much modern recollection of the Japanese martyrs is not angry, nor celebratory, nor even penitential, but sombre, a recollection of suffering from which there was no deliverance and which is not sweetened by any palpable redemption. There are many reasons why that might be so, but let me finish by talking about just one. On the 6th of August 1945, the United States Air Force dropped an atomic bomb over the city of Hiroshima. Despite President Truman's ultimatum the following day, Japan did not surrender, and on the 9th of August, a second American mission set off to drop a second bomb over the city of Kokura. But heavy cloud cover forced the pilots to revert to their secondary target, Nagasaki, which had been chosen for the target list chiefly on account of its heavy shipbuilding industry. But cloud cover was heavy there too, And with fuel running critically low, the bomber Boxcar dropped its bomb nearly two miles away from the planned target site. The resulting 22-kiloton explosion was therefore not quite as destructive as the Hiroshima bomb, despite being nearly twice as powerful. The brunt was borne by the Urukami Valley, where the bomb hit. The hills surrounding the valley gave some protection to the rest of the city. The total death toll remains uncertain from that bombing, but at least 40,000 people died in and shortly after the the attack, and more likely 70, maybe even 80,000. The reason that this is part of my story today is that Urakami, the suburb that was destroyed, was the centre of Nagasaki's Catholic population. Of some 12,000 Catholics living in the city, maybe 8,500 died. That is over two-thirds of the entire community and over one-tenth of all the casualties. With one bomb, the US Air Force had killed more Japanese Catholics than had been executed in two and a half centuries of persecution. How were the surviving Japanese Catholics to make sense of this fresh calamity? One which they shared with the country but was also peculiarly theirs. The most influential response came from the Catholic convert and doctor Takashi Nagai, whose wife died in the bombing and who was himself injured. He eventually died of radiation-related illness in 1951. For him, Nagasaki, and in particular Urakami, was again become a field of martyrs. This was an extension of the 17th century persecutions, and it was that past which gave the event meaning. 
1948, he wrote, so many martyrdoms, uninterrupted persecution, and the atomic bomb. These are the trials that tell of the glory of God. Was not Urakami, the most sacred place in all Japan, chosen as a victim, a pure lamb that had to be slaughtered and burned on the altar of sacrifice to expiate this sin of humanity, the world war, to be the place where the war ended? The book became a bestseller throughout Japan, far beyond the Catholic community. This view of Nagasaki as a burnt offering, mutely sacrificing itself for peace, is one which some Japanese Catholics have begun to push back against. But the notion remains powerful, not least in the city itself. The Catholic community there had by then long organized its memory of the persecution of the centuries of suppression into what it called the four persecutions, uh, culminating in the fourth persecution of the late 1860s. The atomic bombing came to be known as the fifth persecution. And this time, the martyrs that were memorialized weren't a few individuals picked out of the thousands, but a symbol of them all, namely Urakami's cathedral, which was destroyed but not leveled in the blast. Even immediately afterwards, its ruins became a site for memorial worship. It's been rebuilt now, but the blast-damaged statues still survive and are preserved in its grounds. And this stained-glass window in the rebuilt cathedral commemorates the martyrdom of the building that went before it. Last year, when Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris was partly destroyed by fire, the Catholics of Nagasaki offered themselves as a sign of comfort and hope to their distraught French co-religionists. We don't need to describe either catastrophe as a burnt offering to accept that in some way a circle has been closed here or that in our own century, as in the 17th, shared suffering can also mean some shared consolation. Thank you.